everybody i'm continuing my look at star trek voyager with season four which was a far more assured season than we'd seen previously the series producers had seemingly found what they wanted the show to be which wasn't what they promised the show would be three years earlier but you know still the episodes this year were more confident bolder generally more cinematic than they had been before. Brannon Braga and Joe Minoski took the reins of this season and delivered a mostly enjoyable show. Uh, I'm following the Den of Geek roadmap, which has picked out nine episodes from this season, and perhaps crucially, none of the 26 that were produced this year were considered awful by the Den of Geek maestros who picked these. So, you know, this is this is... Considered next generation season three level of quality, which um, I never thought we'd get from Voyager. Anyway, in front of the camera, before the season started, changes occurred as well. For the first time in Trek history, a series regular left not of their own accord. Wanting to shake the series up, the producers wished to bring in a new regular, the rescued Borg Seven of Nine, played by Jerry Ryan. To accommodate this new addition, the producers needed to eliminate one of the cast to allow room in the budget for a new regular salary. They narrowed the choices down to two, Garrett Wang's Harry Kim and Jennifer Lien's Kez. Although, you know, given how wooden he is, one would have thought Chakotay would have been on the chopping block. Hell, he could have been the chopping block. Wang had the good fortune of being named one of People Magazine's Most Beautiful People in the World in 1997, and this apparently completely unrelated event saved his skin. Lien was out. Seems purely arbitrary to me, especially given that Wang has called executive producer Rick Berman an idiot. I presume he called him that after the series wrapped, not why it was still on the air. Ditching Kez, though, didn't really seem to make much difference overall. It's not like getting rid of Riggs from Lethal Weapon. That would be really dumb. Scorpion Part 2 picked up where the cliffhanger last season left off and manages to be as good, if not more, enjoyable than Part 1. The introduction of Species 8472 as an adversary, even the Borg fear, is well handled and the effects seem to take a step forward in this episode, an event that will continue as the season goes on. Voyager started using Ron Thornton and Foundation Imaging this season, who landed on their feet after apparently being left in the lurch by Babylon 5. The joy here, though, is Janeway and Chakotay. For the first time, there are sparks in the Janeway-Chakotay relationship when he countermands her orders after Janeway is incapacitated. Janeway giving him a bollocking is one of the finest moments in the show so far, and had Beltram brought any passion to it whatsoever, this could have been one for the ages. Still, Scorpion Part 2 is mostly hugely enjoyable. 
Jerry Ryan's debut is solid, if unspectacular, for her character, but she will get the lion's share of the stories going forth, so an inauspicious debut is, is par for the course, really. Seven's prominence in the script will apparently lead to problems behind the scenes between Ryan and Mulgrew, whose relationship was apparently fractious and Ryan suffered stress and physical and mental exhaustion as a result. Ryan's addition was the subject of a lot of fan dismay. I know I'm as shocked as you are that fans are upset by something they've not seen yet, but us long-time fans, well, we recall that sex appeal was a big part of Star Trek from the very beginning. The next episode, The Year of Hell, is generally regarded to be the best of the Voyager bunch. In this episode, alluded to a year or so back, but with Kez taking Seven's role, Kurtwood Smith takes centre stage as Anorax, a man obsessed with getting his family back. To this end, he alters all of time, eliminating races at will to try and salvage his loved ones. Voyager simply gets caught in the maelstrom. Anorax could be interpreted as a dig at the fans. An anorak was a pejorative term for a Doctor Who fan back in the 90s, pertaining to a particular garment favoured by the more anally retentive Whovian. But Braga, the episode's writer, claims that this came from the Latin for time, anno, so it could be a coincidence, I suppose. Either way, Smith gives a great performance as the protagonist of the piece, and in true Star Trek fashion, he's no villain. Part 2 gives him a clear and definitive motivation that elevates him above the moustache twirling of other franchises. The episode really scores in giving us what we, or rather I, wanted from the show in the first place. This is a crew run ragged and on the verge of nervous exhaustion. Janeway is frazzled but totally in command. The ship is damaged and held together by spit and prur, and the overall aesthetic of the show is much darker than usual. This was very welcome. The occasional delve into the darker side of Trek is appreciated, and this is another Brannenbrugger mindfuck as he messes around with time and space in a way never really played with before. Even the venerable Doctor Who only really started mucking around with the true machinations of time travel with Douglas Adams and Stephen Moffat. The Year of Hell is pretty expansive and entertaining in its first half, before the second half slows down a bit to explain Anorax's backstory. The ending is also nicely ironic, despite ostensibly being the reset button we all knew was waiting in the wings to be deployed. Anorax has been screwing around with time trying to get his family back, only for the thing that gets his family back to be the destruction of the device he's been using to mess around with time. Well done, Brannon. That was quite clever. Kudos also to Janeway, who is willing to sacrifice her life in a throw of the dice she doesn't know will definitely work. It's a pretty good example of Voyager's cinematic ambitions, although if I don't know if it's what I want from the best of Star Trek... It's light years better than The Killing Game, though, another two-part movie-style show that works on a pure entertainment level, but's not really worth thinking about too much. New alien bad guys the Hirogen take over Voyager's holodeck and reprogram it as a World War II revenge fantasy. The crew all take the part of the French Resistance, except for Chakotay and Paris, who become cliché-ridden GIs. Presumably, the Hirogen only had Sergeant Fury comics to base their data on. It's not that the killing game isn't a romp, it is, and it's an enormously fun one at that. It's especially joyful to see Janeway as Humphrey Bogart running a bar where the only rule is, you leave the war outside, 
and Seven as a chanteuse, with Jerry Ryan performing all of her own singing. It's especially nice to see the French resistance get the do, and even here, in this most inconsequential of tracks, the main German Capitan has a speech about the German right to exterminate all other races just because they can. That's downright chilling. Ultimately, though, this is just another Holodeck Gone Wrong episode. I love the structure of it, that we never see the Hirogen take over Voyager. The episode begins with the Voyager already under the Hirogen thrall. And there is some depth to the Hirogen leader who feels his race is losing something with all this wargaming at the expense of true development. But it's, it's lacking something. Still, the character work is now exceptional, with Neelix making for a pretty damn funny Klingon, and Janeway once again stealing the show as Mulgrew has really settled into the role. It's demonstrative of Voyager's more innovative and entertaining direction that it's not a bore-fest that I recall the early episodes being, and I am actively enjoying this show now and quite looking forward to watching more episodes. It's also telling that again in a Star Trek that is slightly superficial and more along the action-adventure levels, it still has more to say about bigotry and race superiority, or anything really, than any of the Abrams movies. Message in a Bottle was up next, and this was a really good episode. Written by Lisa Klink, the story finds Voyager being able to send a holographic signal to the Alpha Quadrant via a subspace relay device. Captain Janeway decides to send the EMH program, and our good doctor finds himself aboard the USS Prometheus, where he must help the EMH of that starship, played by Andy Dick, defeat a Romulan takeover. Message in a Bottle is a Robert Picardo show, and as such is gloriously entertaining throughout. It also adds, though, to the overall mythology of Voyager. By the end of the episode, the EMH is able to get a message through to Starfleet explaining that the Voyager is not only alive, but where she is. A development that sadly implies that that Romulan in that season one episode never managed to live long enough to get his message through. It's true that the Romulans in this episode are quite stupid, but the situation is well handled, and Picardo and Dick play against each other well, bantering admirably and with some humour. Apparently Andy Dick was somewhat of a controversial figure at the time of this casting, although I'd never heard of him. Whatever the reasons for this controversy, he handles himself well against Voyager's best actor, and the show elicited a few genuine chuckles. Star Trek II's Judson Scott was quite lacklustre as the Romulan commander, and I presume budget constraints were why a crew of only four Romulans managed to take over an entire Federation starship, but all that aside, this was really fun. The ending is also quite emotional, as the EMH lets the crew know that the Federation is aware they are alive, where they are, and that they're planning to move heaven and earth to bring them home. Living Witness, in contrast to the fun of Message in a Bottle, is one of the most provocative Star Trek episodes I've seen in a while. I genuinely rate this as one of the best I've seen, not only of Voyager, but of any of the Star Trek shows, and if you told me that before I started this roadmap, I'd have laughed at you. 700 years in the future, the warring Vascan and Cryian races tell a tale of the warship Voyager and its ruthless and dictatorial crew. A backup of the AMH is all that remains to tell the true story. This is an episode about history, the changing face of historical research, and the need to re-evaluate your own position in the face of new evidence. 
Living Witness was really a gripping 45 minutes of television. The idea of looking at yourself and your country's history and what is versus what it purports to be is a potent one. And the story by Bran and Braga is quite deep in its exploration of the theme of revisionist history. Robert Picardo again carries the script well, looking on aghast at the portrayal of the Voyager as a vicious and savage starship that committed wholesale slaughter. And this provides some enjoyment in an episode that seeks to challenge the brain rather than the funny bone. Mulgrew excels as the most savage version of Janeway, and the episode allows Voyager to do a Mirror Universe episode without actually doing a Mirror Universe episode. Minor alterations to the uniforms and a chilling shot of a smiling Tuvok add to the drama. Overall, this was up there with Death Wish as a Voyager episode that took the Star Trek credo of looking at ourselves through a science fiction lens very seriously and demonstrated what the show can do. Sure, it's an off-concept episode, the real crew don't appear at all, but it's Star Trek at its very finest. In contrast, One by Jerry Taylor is a far more intimate story about loneliness. The Voyager comes across a nebula that is far too big to navigate around, but one that inflicts a heavy toll on the crew after prolonged exposure. The EMH's solution is to put the entire crew into stasis, leaving only himself and Seven to pilot the ship through the hazardous expanse. The biggest problem with One is when you start wondering exactly why Voyager has just the right amount of stasis tubes on board to house the entire crew. But that's not the point of the episode. This is an exploration of Seven's connection to the Borg Collective, and how she's dealing with it having suddenly been severed. It's a very tight, very claustrophobic bottle show. There may have been more drama mined from only having so many stasis tubes available, the crew having to choose who lives and who dies, but the series isn't really into having Janeway make that kind of terrible decision. Leave that to Battlestar Galactica or even the Orville. This story is more concerned with tackling being isolated, and it tackles that very well. So it's not really fair to berate it for a story that they didn't tell. Concentrate instead on the story they did tell, and they tell that one very well. After the crew goes into stasis, the show is an EMH-7 two-hander, and quite a funny one at that, with Seven's deadpan delivery used wonderfully against the EMH's withering sarcasm. At the midpoint, though, the story changes. The EMH starts to suffer from the effects of the nebula, leaving Seven alone, and it becomes more of a horror story, focusing on her hallucinations and how she deals with them. Seven's fears and doubts are well explored, and Ryan excels. The wrap-up is far too neat, and it's a muted episode to be sure, but it's an effective and engaging one. Season 4 closed with Hope and Fear, another Bran and Braga Joe Menoski episode based on an idea by head honcho Rick Berman. Tom Paris and Neelix bring back a passenger from a shopping trip who is a cunning linguist. At the same time, Voyager has received a garbled message from Starfleet. Can the cunning linguist help out, or is this all too convenient to be true? Ray Wise appears again in a subdued performance as the alien linguist, and this is likewise a subdued and low-key finale for the season. Eschewing the usual bombast of a season cliffhanger, Hope and Fear is more character-based, exploring the crew's thoughts on returning home and how they feel about it. The idea, an experimental slipstream drive that can get Voyager home in months instead of years, is a good one. 
And for once, Braga and Minoski seem keen to explore the dynamics of the crew rather than the high concept. Janeway and Seven, as per normal for this season, are at the heart of the story, and both actors have settled in well. Janeway's suspicions come at just the right point in the script, as she voices the feeling that this is all far too coincidental, at the exact moment that I was thinking the same thing. Kudos to the writers for planning exactly where their audience is, and left-footing them. Janeway's investigations confirm her intuitive feelings that the message was fake. One of the key elements of the season has been Seven and Janeway's relationship that has worked far better than one would have thought. Despite Mulgrew's problems with the character, problems that many fans had as well, let's be fair, the disagreements and antagonism between the two gives the series a much-needed shot in the arm. The promise of a crew that aren't all shiny, happy people has finally been realised. The twist isn't anything special. You can pretty much figure it out as Janeway does. But the reason Janeway's interference and Delta Quadrant affairs come into bite her on the ass is a noteworthy one. There isn't really any progress made in terms of Voyager's overall arc, although Ray Wise's ending is nicely ironic. It is, however, a nice change of pace for a season finale, and this focus on character is welcome as the season draws to a close. Oddly, the roadmap skips the season premiere, picking up with episode 2, Drone, by Brian Fuller, Braga and Minoski. The MH7, Tom Paris and Baylana are beamed over from a shuttlecraft, but complications arise during the transport. The MH's mobile emitter is accidentally crosswired with Seven's nanoprobes, creating a 29th century Borg. On the one hand, this is a deliciously high-concept episode with some lovely character moments, particularly for the EMH7 and Belana Therese. On the other, it's incredibly techno-babble-heavy, and is essentially just a retelling of two episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, The Offspring, where Data has a child, and I, Borg. In this episode, it's Seven who has the child, and I loathed I, Borg, feeling it reduced the most fearsome enemy in Star Trek to a bunch of soft, whiny babies, and they never really recovered in my eyes. It's the same with this episode. Once the 29th century Borg becomes domesticated, the episode loses any bite it may have had. Apparently the original pitch was to have this Borg be the Terminator, and having the crew fight an unstoppable killing machine who was loose on Voyager. And I can't help but think this would have been a far better way to go. Yes, the exploration of the thing and learning to understand it is very Star Trek, and one of the reasons the show remains potent, especially at the moment. But this episode ends up being a sappy retread of other, better episodes. It's well acted, well made, it's even well written. The central metaphor of an adopted child wanting to know about his real parents is well handled, but after a fascinating first half, it just becomes another one of Star Trek's tedious anthropomorphising of alien cultures. Just once... I'd have liked to see the crew in truly a life-or-death situation. And if nothing else, maybe the Terminator Borg could have killed off Chakotay. That would have made this episode worth celebrating. Still, Drone is effective, especially in a late twist, when the Borg learn of the drone and prepare an attack. What happens is pretty predictable, but it is effective in its use of character and developing Seven further. The final scene, a literal mirror of the opening, is surprisingly touching. Voyager's 100th episode, Timeless is more time travel tomfoolery from Branham Braga and Joe Minonsky and director LeVar Burton. An aged Harry and Chakotay find Voyager trapped under the ice of an unmapped planet, the crew all dead. 
Reactivating the EMH, they tell him that the Voyager's attempt to get home 15 years ago using the quantum slip drive failed, leaving only Harry and Chakotay alive. Harry and Chakotay were travelling ahead of Voyager in the Delta Flyer, and they managed to push through the slipstream, returning home. Having felt nothing but guilt over the past 15 years, Harry and Chakotay have come up with a desperate plan to send a message 15 years back through time to warn Voyager of their impending doom. Robert Beltran is still stiff as a board, but Garrett Wang surprises as a guilt-fueled Harry Kim, obsessed with fixing a past error that killed his friends. It's a delightful performance, showing Wang was so much better than the material he was given, and, when given the opportunity, how good he could be. His anguish feels real, and that's all credit to the actor. The solution, that a message can be sent through Seven's diagnostic nodes, is as silly as it sounds, but this is Star Trek, and silly's part of the game. Besides, it's merely the MacGuffin to explore Harry's guilt, and all credit to Braga for darkening the show up for its 100th episode. Braga also manages to resist fan service, and what there is is utterly charming, with an appearance from a galaxy-class starship captained by Geordie LaForge. Add in some nice comedy with a drunk seven, some glorious special effects, and an action-packed fourth act. And if Timeless isn't one of Voyager's more thought-provoking episodes, there are worse things for a celebration to be than pure entertainment. Counterpoint is an intriguing episode in which Voyager must help a group of refugees through divorce space. The problem is the Devore are a xenophobic race who dislike telepaths, and the Voyager has been enduring frequent inspections to check for the very thing Voyager is doing. The twist is that the Devore commander, Kashyyyk, requests asylum under the guise of wishing to help the refugees. If you don't see that Kashyyyk is a triple agent from the get-go, You've not watched enough TV, in which case I envy you, as this 45 minutes probably went quicker for you than me. All the way through this one, I was waiting for the other shoe to drop. And what made it tolerable was that it is revealed that Janeway was waiting for it as well. It's not that Counterpoint was a bad episode, it's actually pretty fun in places. Kate Mulgrew gives a career best performance, steely and insubordinate when greeted by DeVore inspections, friendly and helpful when she's assisting the refugees. She convinces throughout that she's fallen for Kashyyyk, and it's a testament to her performance that I still don't know how much was a deception and how much was real. This episode was apparently offered up as a viewer's poll as Captain's Choice for the BBC's Star Trek Night in 2001, alongside the original series The City on the Edge of Forever, Deep Space Nine's Far Beyond the Stars, and The Next Generations in Theory. And this won... I get why people like it. It's well acted, well produced, well written, some excellent music choices and some good performances. But I have to be honest, I'd have voted for Far Beyond the Stars. Dark Frontier was a telefilm event for February sweeps, with the brief being make a spectacular follow-up to Star Trek First Contact. As such, Dark Frontier not only boasts an epic scope, something Voyager has gotten very good at at this point in its history, but also brought in elements of First Contact, the most successful of the Next Generation movies, with the return of the Boar Queen, here portrayed by Arrow's Susanna Thompson. There are bigger and more elaborate battles with the Borg as well. The plot sees Janeway, fed up of running, deciding that they can make their own sneak attack on the Borg after a successful run-in with a Borg probe. The Borg have technology that can cut years off their journey, including transwarp conduits and other applications. 
The Borg Queen learns of the plan and uses it to try and bring Seven back into the Collective. First of all, this episode tramples all over established continuity. Not quite as much as Enterprise or Discovery, but it reveals that Seven's family were investigating the Borg 20 years before the Enterprise encountered them in Q-Who. The writers hand-wave it slightly by saying that it's merely rumour and censor echoes, but if a family of scientists simply vanished while investigating an unknown species, surely that would be in the Federation's data bank somewhere, and data would have found it. Writer Joe Minoski is unrepentant about this apparent goof, saying over on Memory Alpha that we're not willing to be that rigid with continuity, and stating that the story arc of Seven's family was too good to disregard simply because one episode made ten years earlier contradicts it. I suppose whether you agree with Minoski depends on whether you think this is a good episode or not. Personally, I thought it wasn't bad. Sure, it's more in keeping with the J.J. Abrams approach to Trek by making something that's more spectacle and provocative science fiction. But even here, Voyager manages at least to play with its characters in more interesting ways than just broad strokes. The relationship between Seven and the Borg is explored well. Seven's memories of her family are integral to the plot. And once again, the Janeway-Seven relationship is front and centre. We also see the harder, more willing-to-take-risks Janeway, a characteristic that has been developing in the character over the last few seasons. The moral implications of a Starfleet officer willing to enter behind enemy lines to steal what they need is an interesting deviation from Picard's often smug superiority, and more in keeping with Kirk, who was often willing to do whatever it took to do his job, even though he wasn't the flagrant rule-breaker later iterations made him out to be. In this situation, though, I can see Kirk willing to take more risks, bend more rules, and generally be more ambiguous in his approach, just as Janeway is in this episode. Sadly, this doesn't seem to be followed up on. Instead, what we are given is Star Trek's version of a heist movie, with simulations on how to break into the Borg stronghold and nick whatever they want within the allotted time. It's all aided by a simply stupendous score by David Bell, who delivers a soundtrack accompaniment worthy of Ron Jones, and certainly more involving and dramatic than 90s track scores normally are. Janeway refers to her audacious attack as Operation Fort Knox, and I may be the only viewer who'd wish that they'd taken that slightly further and called it Operation Grand Slam. I suspect that's more of a Trip Tucker or Ed Mercer's domain, though. The Bull Queen wants to cut a deal. If Seven comes back to the Collective, she'll let Voyager go. Seven is apparently valuable in that she's the first Borg to regain her individuality, something that again flagrantly ignores the events of the Next Generation's I, Borg, and the seventh season two-parter Descent, or even Jean-Luc Picard himself. I'll let it go that they forgot about Q-Who, as that was a completely different writing staff, but Braga was on staff by the time of the later seasons of Next Generation. I mention all this just to wonder aloud, if you don't watch Discovery because of the plot insertions, how did you cut with these? What's the difference? I actually find these, personally, more irritating than Discovery's, because this was, for all intents and purposes, the same production team. My main issue with Dark Frontier, though, is the same issue I have with First Contact. Why is the Borg Queen even a thing? Why do the Borg need a spokesperson, singular? I wonder the same thing about Locutus on occasion, but that was a presumably special situation, and it did give us a great cliffhanging ending. 
The Borg Queen further dilutes the Borg as a threat, and I personally find it to be a creative misstep. Still, Dark Frontier isn't boring, and from a spectacle standpoint, it may be the best Voyager ever got. Latent Image, however, is an odd episode. It's a good one, don't get me wrong, even if it's treading well-worn paths and has elements of previous episodes of both The Next Generation and Red Dwarf. The airmate suffers a mental breakdown after choosing between saving true crew members, the never-before-seen Ensign Jatel and Harry Kim. The EMH believes he saved Harry due to his personal relationship with him, and he starts agonising over his decision. To that end, the crew conspire to wipe his memory files. Eighteen months later, he stumbles upon the mystery of his missing memory and starts to investigate. I say that I found this one odd, and that's probably because ultimately I can't get past the fact that the EMH is a hologram. So giving him mental health issues, however noble it may be to explore these issues, just doesn't ring true for me in a way that it did ring true with Data, or even with the Cylons. He's not even a machine that has developed a soul. He's a computer program. If, as we'll see in the season finale, Equinox, you can just remove bits of that program, why not just remove this? totally and completely, rather than deleting memories and giving him a mystery to follow. Now, this entire story is about the EMH and his soul, and I'm just not sure I buy that premise. Now, that the EMH has anything resembling a pleasing manner is down to Robert Picardo. Remember the blank slate he was in the pilot episode? And Picardo does excel in this episode. Jerry Ryan, as the passive observer to these events, given she wasn't on the ship 18 months ago, is also excellent. Kate Mulgrew brings her A-game to the proceedings. The exploration of the mental deterioration of the EMH is well-written and well-performed, and the cold turkey scene at the conclusion well-developed. I just feel odd about it all. It also doesn't help that Ensign Jutel is a no-mark that we don't care about. We've never seen her before. We're never going to see her again. And they have these whole scenes of the crew celebrating her birthday as if she's this integral part of the crew and has been for five seasons. Had the show killed Harry Kim and then had the EMH agonise about it, well, that would have been during and interesting. As it is, all Jatel has going for is that she's pretty. And we all care about pretty things. One of the things I found weird about Voyager is its lack of a supporting cast. DS9 has almost a complete cast again of supporting and recurring roles, and I always wondered why Voyager didn't do the same, given the static nature of the crew and their mission. Still, latent image is a nice mystery, even if I did figure out what Janeway was doing this from the off. It's well acted, and it's good to see mental illness explored. I just wish they'd done it with a character you can't just reboot. Bride of Chaotica was up next, and this is Voyager's version of The Trouble with Tribbles, a fun romp homaging the 30s and 40s Flash Gordon and Book Rogers serials. It was written by Brian Fuller and Michael Taylor, and it's immensely entertaining with some fun character moments, such as Harry only joining in with Paris' holodeck fun so he can interact with some slave girls. The black and white cinematography is also worthy of note. Still, when you strip it down, this is yet another Holodeck Malfunctions episode, and as such, there's an air of same old, same old to it. Still, Martin Rayner does his finest Ming the Merciless impression, not just chewing the scenery, but tearing it from the bone and spitting it out with relish. 
Kate Mulgrew also has moments of genius, from her demanding a black coffee from Neelix before she'll even allow him to talk to her, to her performance as the titular bride. Mulgrew looks like she's having a blast, vamping it up for all it's worth. Fortunately, the cast having a lot of fun carries a lot of weight with the viewer. And the episode, like Moonlighting's black and white instalment or the Buffy musical, manages to carry the day by sheer force of goodwill. Well, at least in the Captain Proton segments, anyway. The attention to detail and the production design and the wonderfully clunky robot wedded to the OTT performances of the guest cast are great, a really fun riff on the kind of stories that perhaps inspired the original show, at least in what it didn't want to be. However, the ship subplot, a techno-babble MacGuffin about photonic beings that want something, is pretty tedious stuff. Yes, I know the holodeck needs a reason to malfunction, but this damn machine has never worked. And the fact that it still doesn't have a fucking off switch is evidence of some really bad Starfleet design. If something malfunctioned in real life as much as the holodeck does in Star Trek, it would have been mothballed years ago. Tuvok has a number of pithy asides, and there is finally lip service made to the ship having toilets, and Fuller's dialogue is very funny in places, meaning that Bride of Chaotica swims along at a nice pace. It's camp and it's diverting, but like Tribbles, it's a little too comedic to be a truly great episode. People who take their trek too seriously probably hate this one, though. Someone to Watch Over Me, by contrast, is a comedy episode done right. Far more character-based than high concept, this segment, written by Michael Taylor and Brannon Braga, features two plot lines. In one, Seven is constantly observing Bailana and Tom Paris as they move from dating and into a relationship, whilst in the other, Voyager is greeting a new race, and Janeway entrusts the job of being the ambassador to Neelix. The charm of the episode comes very much from Jerry Ryan and Robert Picardo. The EMH is trying to teach Seven how to date, but he is very much training her from a textbook, something Paris points out when he bets the EMH can't get Seven to go on a successful date with a real-life form, not a hologram. Ryan plays off the always-reliable Picardo exceptionally well, bringing a naivete and a likability to Seven's quest to find out more about human mating rituals. Her and Picardo even have a pretty fun duet of You Are My Sunshine, the best rendition of that song on TV since Dirk Benedict and Dwight Schultz did it on the A-Team. This is also the first inclination that the EMH is developing feelings for Seven. There's a lot of good humour to be mined here, and the episode does an excellent job with it. Seven's asking out of her choice of date, Lieutenant Chapman, is really funny, as is poor Harry Kim, who learns of Seven's task and is crestfallen when she brutally shuts him down. Camaraderie between the cast is at an all-time high here. Robert Duncan McNeil and Picardo also work well with each other, and Roxanne Dawson's annoyance when she learns she's a guinea pig in Seven's experiment is hysterical. Equally humorous is Seven's actual date, Scenes like this can be nauseatingly embarrassing, but it's to Jerry Ryan and Brian McNamara, who plays Chapman's credit, that it plays as funny, but also a little bit sad. Chapman goes out of his way to make this work, even though Seven hasn't a clue what she's doing. 
lip surface is also paid to how the rest of the crew have probably stirred lavishly at the Borg babe. Having the EMH present on the holodeck offering advice and help whilst the date unfolds is also pretty charming stuff, Picardo's ability as a comedic performer being the highlight once again. The episode is also surprisingly touching. One of the things I've been reading since beginning this roadmap, in addition to articles from those who appreciate Captain Janeway, is those articles about Seven and how her personality can be seen as being on the autistic spectrum. These comments from people with autism stating how Seven's actions have struck a chord with them and in some ways helped them have been quite interesting to me and demonstrated the need for representation of this kind and how people like to see themselves on screen. The MH's reaction is also pleasant and diverting and Picardo nails it, as usual, especially in the scene in the holodeck where he practices telling Seven his new feelings. It's quite heartbreaking at the end. Neelix's subplot isn't all that, although it plays into the main themes of being open to new experiences. It isn't irritating, though, more a case of it not being as interesting as the main plot, but it doesn't distract, even if some of the drunk acting is well over the top. All told, this is a charming and hugely entertaining exploration for the characters. It's quiet and understated in places, funny and touching in others, and it does demonstrate one of the things we've lost in the drop-in episodes from 26 a year. It's doubtful a small bottle show like this would be made now. It also shows how good Voyager could be when they ditched the spatial anomalies and techno battle, if only for a week. The season finale, Equinox, is appropriately enough the last episode recommended for season 5 on Den of Geeks roadmap. So far, this has been reasonably entertaining, with only a few rare turkeys, and season finales tend to be high points, even as season premieres tend to never meet expectations. Written by Braga, Minoski, and Rick Berman, the Voyager finds another ship accidentally sent into the Delta Quadrant by the caretaker, the USS Equinox. Initially excited to meet another Starfleet crew, Janeway discovers that the Equinox captain, Ransom, has been sacrificing an alien life form to enable them to get home quicker, and the aliens aren't too happy about it. Equinox is a mixed bag. Now don't get me wrong, it's a pretty fine episode. The Equinox crew are populated by people who know what they are doing is wrong, but are in dire straits. And this is a nice commentary on Voyager's critics. The Equinox is falling to bits, rations are low, morale is in the gutter, and they're suddenly presented with a way home. And all it will cost is a little bit of their soul. Janeway gets to be sanctimonious about it because she has a ship and a crew in top condition. The writers do a good job of contrasting the desperation of the Equinox with the relative stability of the atmosphere on Voyager. However, it is pretty obvious from the start where this is going. The Equinox crew can't all be sunshine and roses because there's no conflict if they are. They can't team up for the remainder of the show because we can't have two ships and two crews running around. We'll have to wait for Battlestar Galactica to do that with the Battlestar Pegasus. So we're left with a story that follows beats we know are going to happen. Granted, it does them very well. The Equinox crew is well cast, and although it's a massive coincidence that Belana went through the Academy and dated one of only four remaining Equinox crew members left alive, it gives her and actor Titus Welliver some nice moments and allows Robert Duncan McNeil to shine as a slightly jealous Tom Paris. That said, the predictability of it doesn't detract from the writing. There are some great character moments and some decent action. 
Voyager is really, really good at cinematic action beats, and this season finale hits all the right notes. Obviously, you can't really judge this one until you see how part two pans out, but all told, this was a pretty effective season finale. There have been more episodes suggested for these past two seasons than any other, and the general consensus seems to be that these are Voyager at its peak. As it is, I've enjoyed more of these than I've not, although it's telling that there still isn't a decent Chakotay episode in the bunch. Onward to season five. What is Council of Geeks? Well, despite the name, it's actually just one kind of pretentious guy on YouTube who rants at camera a lot and just goes on and on about things like Doctor Who and Marvel movies and Star Wars and... I meant, once the Council of Geeks podcast feed? Oh, that. Well, it kind of depends on when it is you're looking at it. What does that mean? Well, it's been a lot of things at a lot of different times. Originally, it was just longer versions of roundtable talks that uh, the guy who runs the thing used to have. It was the home of 90s comics retrial for a while. Oh, I liked that show. Yeah, but you know, then he did Executioner's Song and it broke him, so he doesn't do that anymore either. Oh. There was Go Home Hollywood, You're Drunk. Winner of the Relatively Geeky Networks Award for Best New Podcast in 2017? Yep, that's the one. That's over too. His co-host had a kid and, well, he didn't bother ever trying to find somebody else. Oh. So what is it now? Well, at the moment, it is home to see a space cowboy, where he is just going back through Cowboy Bebop and uh, taking it one episode at a time, putting his thoughts up after not having seen the thing in about 15 years. Okay. Well, what will it be after he's done with that? Stick around and maybe you'll find out what's next or catch up on the old stuff. It's still there. This is a very strange promotion. Yeah, well, he's a strange guy. Okay, let's have a delve in the email bag. Palace of Glittering Delights 109, Star Trek Orville is an email from Dave McElveney. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I always get confused with Mucks. McElveney. Is that, is that more correct? You'll have to let me know, Dave. Greetings, Andrew. Hello, Dave. I've listened to your Palace of Glittering Delights for some time, as well as the Overlooked Dark Knight, which you co-host with Michael Bailey, and I enjoy hearing you on these podcasts. Your recent episode on the Orville focusing on the identity two-parter was fun and insightful, I thought. I too had a bit of trepidation when I first heard about the Orville, particularly when I heard it was Seth MacFarlane's brainchild. Like you, I feared something like a parody of Star Trek, with fart jokes aplenty, but decided to watch it, and although I wasn't so much of a fan of what I considered the overly broad humour of the earlier episodes, the show soon won me over, with its high production values and generally intelligent scripts. Soon enough, the humour seemed to be toned down to a sort that seemed to fit the characters better. For the most part, anyway. I agree that this second season has been very good, and this two-part story absolutely wowed me. As you mentioned, it may not have been perfectly and tightly plotted, such as when Ty just walks off the ship onto Kalon 1 without anyone asking where he's going, what he's doing, or if he has anyone's permission, including his mum. Even so, both parts, but especially part one, had me on the edge of my seat. I'm enjoying the Orville and hope it continues at this level of quality for some time. I also enjoy your work and hope it also continues for some time. Thank you. Live long and prosper, Dave McElveney. Okay. Ah, thank you very much, Dave. That's grand. It's very nice to hear from you. I thoroughly enjoy doing the Overlook Dark Night with Mike. And if we didn't have a pesky time difference, we'd do more of them more often. But, you know, we do what we can. Uh, Palace is also very enjoyable and I'm glad you find it fun. 
Okay, that's it for this time. Um, last time I did a piss take of all the new podcasts that have rolled around with shit tons of credits at the end of them. And I did a mick take of that with like most of it's just me. Which it is. Most of the people I know that make podcasts do it themselves. We don't have 24 production staff. that Presumably I'll get paid. How does that work? I did miss off one important credit though. So... Here's an important credit. Twitter feed produced by Gene Hendricks. There you go. Hope that makes you happy, Gene. Anyway, I'll be back next time with whatever. Again, I'm writing three or four episodes at once because, you know, I'm mercurial like that. Either that or I've got a very low attention span, who can say. Um, but you want to email me like Dave did? HeyKidsComics at VirginMedia.com is the email address. And as ever... Everything's going to be fine. See you soon.